This is Truth with Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 18. The topic of church discipline can create tremendous fear as believers dread the possible outcomes of confronting a brother or sister in Christ. But the methodology Jesus prescribes is clear from Matthew 18. Private exhortation described in verse 15, proper corroboration from verse 16, pastoral consultation in verse 17, and when all else fails, peaceful separation. This process of church discipline is hard. It consumes emotional and spiritual energy. But as we'll discover, it's worth the effort to follow God's plan for His church. And it comes with great rewards. Let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. If you have your Bibles with you today, let's read the entire passage, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. And Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two or three of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst." So after outlining the gradual steps for restoration, that's the key word, restoration, not punishment, Jesus gives us a twofold assurance. First, when we faithfully practice church discipline with the right goal in mind, which is restoration, we will enjoy, according to verse 18, perfect connection with heaven. And he starts this verse with the reassuring words that we are all familiar with by now. Truly I say to you. That's a formula that Jesus uses. It's an introductory sentence. It does not mean that only what follows is true. Everything that Jesus says is true because he is the truth. What he's saying is what you're about to hear is going to sound so unusual. It's going to sound so confrontational to your own flesh and strange that you might be tempted to not believe it. And then he goes on to introduce the loosing and binding pair again. I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, it may sound strange, but again, staying within the context will help you. And let's understand that in the first time that he introduced his, this pair here of loosing and binding, he emphasized the church's delegated authority. You remember that? We talked about this in chapter 16 when we talked about this. He is referring to the church's delegated authority. The church doesn't have any authority other than what God has given to us in order to conduct business, God's business. That's our goal. We exist to give glory to God and to conduct heavenly business, His business. So in the first time when Jesus mentioned this loosing and binding pair here, he is talking about the delegated authority that he would give the church to proclaim the message that looses people or unbinds people from the grip of their sin, untangles them from their sin, 
And we know what that message is. That's the gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. So, friend, every time you are sharing the gospel with someone and telling them about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you are telling them, please be loosed from your sin. If you do not repent and come to salvation in Jesus Christ, you will remain bound in your sin, and that binding will carry through eternity unless you repent and come to Christ right now. So the first time he was talking about this pair, he was talking about the message of salvation that the church has been commissioned with, and he made that very clear towards the end of the gospel of Matthew, and people who refuse to come to him remain bound in their trespasses, and God has established this in heaven before even the foundation of the earth. Now in the second mention of this pair of loosing and binding, which is the one that we just read today, it's the second time that Jesus is using that expression. He assures that the Father not only approves the process of church discipline, but also grants the local church, the local congregation, through its leadership, the authority to carry out the process. So in other words, Jesus is saying here, this is an essential part of church life because there are inevitable stumbling blocks that will come. And when they do come, how do you deal with them? Do you sweep it under the rug? You ignore it? No, you deal with it in this particular way. I am giving you authority to do that. He's saying, I am delegating that authority to the church through the local church, the leadership of that church, to carry out that process. So specifically, what he's saying is binding and loosing have to do with forbidding and allowing in this particular case. Forbidding and allowing. Now, in the context of the restoration of a brother or a sister caught in sin, the local assembly, represented by the elders and the people who are involved in the initial exhortation, remember verse 15, we join forces in order to help the brother or sister in Christ be untangled from his or her sin. In other words, we are joining forces to loose that brother or sister from his or her sin. That is the goal. So in Jesus Christ is saying here, I am delegating you the authority to continually plead and reason and dialogue with that brother and sister in Christ. Go the extra mile in order to loose him or her from the snare of sin. If it gets to the point that that person is unrepentant, then the only solution is you need to preserve the purity of the church and excommunicate that brother or sister in Christ. Ask them to leave. Because when we get to that point, when that person is, his or her heart is so hardened because of sin that he will not repent or she will not repent, we have to say then, sadly, you are bound in your sin. We're here to help you, untangle you from your sin. But because you will not repent, you will remain bound in your sin. Therefore, you are sabotaging your own growth, sabotaging the fact that God wants to bless you and give you the blessing of a life free from sin. Now, God, who is omniscient, already knows the end from the beginning. And that's what Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. In other words, I already know the end from the beginning, so you're carrying out my plan. But we're talking about untangling or loosing someone from their sin. Here's how that untangling works. In unison, we beg the brother or sister trapped in a transgression, please break from your sin, repent, come back to the fold. The truth has already set you free, according to John 8, verse 32. So just live out that freedom from sin. You are no longer controlled by your sin, according to what the Bible says. Let us help you remove the shackles of an illicit romance, of an adultery, or, or, or the sin of pride, or the sin of an unforgiving spirit, or a resentful heart, 
or whatever the sin in question is. Let us help you get unshackled from that. But we also, in that process, warn, brother or sister, if you do not repent, you will remain bound in your iniquity. You will destroy your family. You will destroy your testimony and your reputation. And we continue, furthermore, not only that, but you are threatening the purity and the unity of the church. God forbids you from partaking in the assembling. God has commissioned the church to carry out that task. Unless you repent of your sin, you are forbidden from partaking. He may discipline you severely. We must honor that rule made in heaven, but we welcome you with open arms if you repent. So that's how that untangling works. Christ promises that when the local church applies this authority here, this untangling process, the binding and loosing that he's talking about here, the congregation then serves as a representative of heavenly realities. Think about that. We are functioning as representatives of heavenly realities. And here's the reason. Although here on earth, our local churches are led by and filled with redeemed sinners in heaven... Everyone is restored 100% and promoted to a glorified existence. So that is why we are conducting a heavenly business. We are imitating heaven where everybody is restored. Woe to the world, he says, but there's no such thing in heaven. There's no woes in heaven. Only the woes of the book of Revelation, woes being pronounced on the earth. So in light of this, church, instead of dreading the process of church discipline... We should consider it a great blessing, an indescribable opportunity, not only to honor the heart of our great shepherd. Remember, he leaves the 99, according to what Jesus says in verses 12 and 13. He leaves the 99 in the safety of green pastures to go rescue the sheep that wandered off into danger. And that is what we are supposed to do. That's a great honor and opportunity to carry out the business of Jesus Christ, restoration ministry, the mission of rescuing sinners who are caught in a trespass of sin, of stumbling blocks of sin. So instead of loathing the process of church discipline, if we change our perspective and look at it from the perspective of Christ here, we will honor his desire to conduct heavenly business. Now, think about this for a moment, church. Every other institution in the world operates from an earthly perspective. Every other institution. They exist to produce profit, to honor shareholders, to advance worthy causes, or earthly causes. But as Christ's local body of believers, the local community of redeemed people, not only do we get to open the door of heaven by telling people, enter through the narrow gate, and there is the door right there. In fact, we're going this way. Join us to go to heaven and enjoy existence in, in eternity in a glorified sense. We get to do this to show people the door of heaven by preaching the beautiful message of Christ, the saving message of Jesus Christ. But not only that, church, we get to bring a little bit of heaven on earth. When we apply church discipline, we are conducting heavenly business. We are reminding people of the purity and sinlessness of heaven. So, I ask you in light of this, Grace Baptist, is there anything more dignified? No other organization gets to witness and experience the restoration of its members from a heavenly perspective. That is the honor that God has given us to do. What a blessing. What an opportunity. And that's one of the rewards of church discipline is to conduct heavenly business and to witness and experience the restoration of a brother or a sister in Christ. 
picking them up and say, here, let's get you restored. Let's get you up. But there's a second reward of the ministry of restoration through church discipline here. When we faithfully practice church discipline, not only do we enjoy a perfect connection with heaven, but according to verses 19 through 20, we will have a personal confirmation from heaven. This is what he says in verses 19 through 20, in case you were wondering. Now, let me just say something about how he starts verse 19. Again, he says, again, I say to you. Now, that's important for us to notice that he used that word. Because, again, it means that what comes next may be hard for the human mind to understand. When he says, again, I say to you, in other words, again, truly, I say to you, pay attention. Again, I say to you, that if two or three agree on earth anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. And as evidence that this is hard to understand is the fact that you have heard a number of sermons and Bible lessons on this that have nothing to do with what's being said here. Because whoever was given that lesson failed to look at the context. Because we tend to yank this verse out of context to say whatever we want, we wanted to say. We don't do that with any other book. Have you noticed that? We, we, we don't abuse Shakespeare like we abuse the Bible. We, we give C.S. Lewis more respect than the Bible. We never take quotes out of context from uh, any, any of these authors. Why would we do this with the Bible? So, for this reason, let's understand what Jesus is not saying in verse 19. What he's not saying, this is not a promise that if two of his followers unite in prayer about a particular goal, the father is now obligated to answer that prayer. This is not what he is saying. Okay? That doesn't make any sense because even if two or three bank robbers get together and say, Lord, please bless us as we drive, give us travel mercies in order to rob this bank. That doesn't make any sense. So remember the context here. And the context is restoration through church discipline. Also remember the context, God's desire that no little one may perish. Remember, verse 14, circle that verse again. That is the desire of the Father, that no little one should perish. And the little one here is not a literal child. He's using the expression little one as a metaphor for every believer. We've, we've covered that before. So again, just as a, to recap, you and I are little ones according to God's perspective. We're not big deals. We're little ones, and his desire is that no little one, no Christian should perish. Let's stay within the context, okay? So when a believer approaches another Christian privately, and both of you come to the correct understanding and purpose of church restoration and pursue that process through repentance and forgiveness, the Father will honor that process. Why? Because that's his will. You understand that? So... What he's saying is if two of you, meaning if there's a private confrontation that takes place, a private exhortation, and, uh, and the two of you come to that understanding, you have won your brother. In other words, restoration is a blessing from God. That's what he's saying. Now, if no agreement occurs, which happens all the time, at this level, then the exhorting believer must move to the next gradual step of church discipline. Get one or two witnesses and approach the brother or sister living in sin to try to accomplish restoration. And even then, restoration is not guaranteed because you have something called free will. What Jesus is saying is, I am personally involved in the process. Not only I am involved, but the Father is involved because the Father will honor your faithfulness to the process. If two of you 
come to an agreement that this is what we're supposed to do. Yes, you are right. Maybe, you know, I, I, I did commit this sin or I am living a life of sin. I do need to repent. Great, you have won your brother. Restoration is then accomplished at this point. So we as Christians must not lift this verse out of context. To recruit a brother or sister to pray for a new car, for example. I've heard this kind of stuff where people are taking verses like this and some others that have to do with, with praying in Jesus' name. And they use this for the, the name it and claim it type of deal. The blab it and grab it type of thing. So along with judge not lest you be judged, Matthew 7 verse 1. Verse 20 here ranks as the top 10, I would say. Most butchered passages of scripture. And I have to admit, I have mutilated this verse before. Now, verse 20, that we're talking about the next verse now, when, when it says, For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. This is another one that is used out of context all the time. Again, in order for us to not miss the mark, we need to stay within the context here. So let's do that. And let me again tell you what Jesus does not mean by singing this. He never meant the reality or the truth of his presence in the church as a consolation for poorly attended events. Do we understand that? He is not saying, oh, don't feel bad. Only three people showed up and you prepared food for 30. And let me tell you why that is. Because Jesus lives in the heart of every believer. That's Colossians 1 verse 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So where you go, Jesus goes. What you see, Jesus sees. What you hear, Jesus hears. Because he's in you. And also, according to Matthew 28 verse 20, he promised to be with us and never leave us. So he is in our midst. Even when I am driving my car by myself, when I'm shaving, when I'm sleeping. Furthermore, he is inseparable from his people. Remember, he said this, if you do it unto one of these little ones, you do it to me. He is inseparable from his people. So he is in us. We are in him, whether I am in a crowd of a thousand or I am crossing the desert by myself. He is there, no matter where I am. So what we need to do, church, is be diligent to present ourselves approved to God as workmen who do not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, according to 2 Timothy 2.15. So here's how we're going to do Here's what I want. Here's homework for you, okay? What I need you to do is circle the, the words two or three in verse 20. Circle them in your Bible. That's okay. I want you to use your Bible in this way. Okay, so circle the two or three in verse 20. Now what I want you to do is link them to the one or two more of verse 16. Draw, draw an arrow to verse 16 where Jesus says one or two more. So there's two or three in verse 20, and then the one or two more of verse 16. I want you to link them, okay? The one or two more and the two or three are the witnesses reasoning with the unrepentant believer gathered together to conduct heavenly business. Verse 18, that's why they come in Jesus' name. He says, I am personally involved. And that's great comfort. Because he's saying, "Is I'm not going to leave you alone. You're not doing something that has no significance in heaven. What you're doing has eternal significance. I am personally involved in the process. I want you to know that I am in your midst overseeing the whole thing. Now, let me give you another passage here. That'll give us a great amount of comfort in the format of a vision, apocalyptic vision. Okay, this is John describing the very presence of Christ in his church. There I am in their midst. This is the vision that John had that illustrates that perfectly, okay? 
Revelation 1, verses 12 through 20. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when he has made it to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he had seven stars, and out of his mouth came a two-edged sharp sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I felt at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw at my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are are the seven churches. So what Jesus is saying here, did you catch that church? Jesus is saying, I am in the middle of the churches. I am in the midst of the church. Jesus stands in the middle of those metaphorical lampstands, the church. Why are we metaphorical lampstands? Because we are the light of the world. And Jesus is there. And in this particular case, he's referring to the seven churches of Asia Minor that he wrote letters to these churches. But they are representatives of every church from the day of Pentecost until the day of rapture. And what does he tell us, church? What, what does this vision tell us? He is present in his church, sustaining, commending, and rebuking when necessary, equipping and comforting when necessary. He says, I am there in their midst. In other words, whenever you conduct heavenly business in my name, I am there. Well, he, he would be there regardless, whether, even when there is sin. He's there grieving sin. But what he's saying is, I'm signing off on this. You have my approval. In church, that is our goal. The goal is to be approved by God. We search not the approval of man. We search the approval of God. And in light of this, church, again, of these wonderful rewards of church discipline, instead of loathing the process, of dreading or avoiding it like a plague or considering it an unpleasant part of our Christian lives, how about we look at it from the perspective of Christ, the one who has eyes like flame of fire, like we just read here in the vision of John. And from that perspective, from his view, restoration of a believer caught in sin is not merely a human endeavor. This is what he's saying. Restoration of a believer in Christ who has been trapped in the stumbling blocks of sin. Jesus himself, through his very presence in the believers, oversees the process, softening hearts, giving wisdom, granting endurance, and ultimately lavishing us with his sustaining grace to go through the process, even when restoration does not occur for reasons known only to him. I've been doing this long enough, church, and I have had the unpleasant experience of witnessing a believer caught in sin make shipwreck of his or her faith because of unrepentant sin. It's heartbreaking. I've seen families destroyed because of sin, and not just sexual sin, self-centeredness, thinking that I'm in this marriage because I want to be happy and your job is to make me happy. Again, that's what the world says. It's not what the Bible says. So failed attempts at restoring believers is heartbreaking. It brings temporary sorrow because they cause rupture in fellowship, yes. It causes separation of intimate friends because, again, fellowship and friendship has been shattered now. People second-guess each other. They create parallel realities that have nothing to do with true reality. There's shattering of trust. And in breaking of hearts, 
But like the psalmist says in Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may last for the night, but shout of joy comes in the morning. And the reason for that, church, nothing, nothing will trouble the conscience of a faithful follower of Christ who honors his value system. Do you understand that? If you are caught in a trespass and sin and you refuse to repent, your conscience will kill you. Your conscience will keep you up at night and will cause anxiety to you. However, if you are involved in the process of church discipline here, and even if it doesn't happen the way you expected it, even if it doesn't result in restoration of a sinning believer, you will sleep very well at night because of the blessing of a clear conscience of following his plan for restoration. Paul expresses this clear conscience when he writes to the Corinthians, Our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. That in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. What he's saying is nothing that you've heard is from fleshly wisdom. And this is our proud confidence, the blessing of a clear conscience. And by the way, I told you there were two rewards of church discipline. Here's the bonus, a clear conscience. So when you engage in church discipline, your confidence is this. If you follow these steps, there's nothing to fear. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.